We turn now to God's Word, reading from Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, starting at the 13th verse. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, 
he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor Michael Elleveld from St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in town to bring to us God's message from this passage. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, James, and uh, thank you for uh, the invitation. I guess you can sneak through the door with a, a name like Elveld, can't you, into the Reformed Church, but um, it's great to be here. Um, what, what I thought I might do is, uh, I guess after a reading like that, is it could almost, you know, say let's close now with prayer, uh, because um, that's Paul's sermon. And uh, you, you look at that and you think, how are you going to um, yeah, improve on that? Well, we're not going to improve on it, but we are going to have a, a look at it uh, in some detail. Um, but before we get to that, I thought what I might do is give you a little bit of a summary to the context of this, this passage, because it's like bang in, the, in a section out of Acts. And so if we can get a map up there on the screen. Oh, it's on the screen there. That's all right. It's not on that screen. So just to put you in the picture here, if you look at that map, uh, you can see a, a large gold dot. Uh, that is uh, Antioch. Uh, the church of Antioch is our mother church in the sense that it was the first Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. It was also the first uh, church to initially uh, send out missionaries. Uh, prior to this, the gospel spread uh, through persecution of Jews. So it was a case of churches being established uh, through uh, dark providence. Yet here at Antioch, uh, following a time of prayer and fasting, the church sent out Saul, as in Paul, uh, and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. Yet it was God's mission. Uh, he, uh, through the Holy Spirit, set apart Paul and Barnabas, and, and he filled them with spirit for this task. And on the map you can see there uh, Paul and Barnabas are head to the island of Cyprus along with a tag along called John Mark. Now earlier in chapter 13 on this island they encounter satanic opposition uh, through a false prophet and sorcerer called Bar-Jesus. Uh, this sorcerer uh, didn't want his boss, the pro-counsellor, to hear the gospel so in an act of judgment, Bar-Jesus was blinded and the word of God went forth. You know, the powers of darkness couldn't stop the gospel uh, going forward. Uh, so it's God's mission done in his power. And next on our map from Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas move uh, back to the mainland to Perga. So you can see there where they end up at Perga. And here at Perga, John Mark abandons Paul and Barnabas and runs home to his mummy. Now, we're not sure exactly why 
Uh, John Mark shoots through, but people have all sorts of theories. You know, was it the change of leadership with Paul's name now being mentioned first? You know, was uh, the Gentile focus too much for this uh, Palestinian Jew? Or perhaps it was something like malaria or illness or the terrain. Was his mother sick and that's why he went home? Or was it the fact that John Mark maybe wasn't called to the mission field in the first place. The Holy Spirit said back in Acts 13.2, he set apart Barnabas and Saul, as in Paul. There was no mention of John Mark. Or was it the encounters with the pagan, dark world and the rigours of missionary life that became all too much? We're not told the reason, but John Mark is gone. He has abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And now looking at the map, next we arrive there in the top uh, left-hand corner uh, at, to, uh, sorry, at the place called Pisidian Antioch. So let's pause now and pray about what happens uh, in this place. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to this uh, section of scripture this evening... Father, help us to once again tremble at your word. Father, you are the living God and you've given us a living word. And Father, we pray and ask that you'll help it, Lord, to challenge us this evening, encourage us, perhaps rebuke us, teach us, Lord. We pray, Father, you help it to renew our minds and our thinking and the way that we conduct ourselves. Father, we ultimately would love you lord just to speak speak through your word to us your people father we hunger for the voice of god our living creator we hunger for you to speak into our lives to continue to shape us and mold us into the character of your son so we humbly ask that to, to happen this evening in jesus name amen uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, there was a huge storm at, at my place and the, the wind was swirling and the rain was pouring down and every now and again there was these strong gusts. And I, I looked out the window uh, and we have a couple of man ferns there and the fronds of the man fern were swinging all over the place, swinging around and to my surprise, they didn't snap off. They were so flexible. And yet when I looked at the, the trunk, which is the, the root of the man fern, it was rock solid. It wasn't going anywhere. And when it comes to missions, evangelism and even the church, to be biblical you need both of these concepts. You need flexibility and immovability. If you get this wrong, you end up either theologically liberal with no foundation or theologically legalistic with no flexibility. And in this section of scripture today, both flexibility and immovability are presented biblically in the context of evangelism. What is the immovable aspect we'll be looking for in our passage? The gospel, the truth of God's word. What is the flexibility? The way Paul presents the message. So verse 14. 
On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Now, at Pisidian Antioch, there was a large Jewish population. Paul and Barnabas would have no problem uh, as Jews attending one of their meetings, especially if it meant an opportunity for the gospel. And being a first century synagogue service, it would have uh, included the the creed from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. It would have included prayer and finished with a benediction. But the focus was on the reading of verse 15, God's law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and verse 15, uh, the reading of the prophets. So the focus was on the Bible and an exposition and application of that passage. And this teaching would have been done by uh, the local rabbis or visiting rabbis like Paul and Barnabas, who uh, will or could have been invited to speak and likely would have been done would have been invited here well an invitation to speak goes out in verse 15 and in verse 16 paul accepts the invitation and then we get paul's sermon and we know from from this that paul uh, is a presbyterian uh, because he has a three-point sermon um i didn't think that would go down well here Maybe it was reformed, sorry, reformed at a three-point sermon. But, um, no, just kidding. Now, he does have a clear three-section structure. And in the first section, in verses 16 to 25, we see God's story retold. Verse 16 says, Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now, as I read... uh, A few of these verses out, listen to why I call this section God's story retold. And pay particular notice to who is orchestrating these events. So looking here from verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Cana and gave their land to his people and their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So if you do the maths here, you've got 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness and 10 years to possess the land of Cana. Uh, That's 450 years. Now back to verse 20. After this, God gave them them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. Up to this point of the established monarchy with David as king, we can see that these events throughout history are not haphazard. They're not random. God doesn't do random. God rules over all kingdoms in Proverbs 
Uh, 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. God is sovereign over the plans of humans. From Proverbs 16.9, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. God is sovereign in salvation from Romans 9. God has mercy on whom he wants, whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Job says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. The psalmist says in Psalm 115, our, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Even in our hardships from Romans Romans 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. God doesn't do random. And here, in Paul's first point, we see a God who is sovereign in history. But not just normal history, but redemption history. He has a plan. What is it? Let's read on verse 23. From this man's, that's David's, descendants, literally from this man's seed, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Now, while this truth may not be news to your ears here today... Let us put ourselves in that Jewish synagogue. God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus. From hearing the prophets read, verse 15, these Jews and God-fearing Gentiles would know only the Lord, only Yahweh is Saviour. Isaiah 43, verse 11, I, even I, the Lord... Sorry, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Saviour. In Isaiah 45, 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Saviour. There is none but me. Yet here, Jesus is a Saviour. This sounds a lot like Jesus is divine. And what is he going to save them from? Well, that will come. And not only that, he's not only the divine saviour, he is a king from David's line and the promised Messiah. And while this is not Paul's sermon application, there is an important lesson for us to learn here from Paul's preaching. Paul hasn't arrived at the gospel yet, but what he's doing is telling God's story here in a way that suits his audience. It's called contextualisation. Paul is in a Jewish synagogue, so that is why he packages the gospel around the history of Israel. Paul uses God's dealings with Israel to persuade the Jews of the truth of Jesus. Paul would not use this presentation to pagans who are clueless of Israel's history. That is why in the very next chapter to pagan farmers, he talks to them about the God who sends rain on their crops. Paul presents the gospel different to the Greek philosophers in Acts 17 and his sermon to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 is again very different. He tailors his presentation of the gospel differently in different circumstances. This is the fern frong. This is the flexibility part. It's not a, a case of one size fits all approach. 
In our Launceston community, there are some, a few, that have been brought up in the church. There are some who may have gone through the Christian school over here and know something of Christianity. Yet there are some who are Buddhists, some who are Muslims. There are even some who are Hindus. We had them disrupt our service only a couple of weeks ago with their Hindu chants. But most know nothing of the Christian faith. When someone asks you about the hope that you have, you need to use your God-given wisdom and tailor your response to fit the situation. Be flexible in your approach. But one thing is immovable. There is a root that should never move. One thing that should never change is the gospel. It is God's mission and his message. And the truth of scripture should never be compromised. What is the flexibility? The way Paul presents the message. What is the immovable aspect? The gospel and the truth of God's word. Here, God's story is retold to those familiar with it. But like all good stories, there is a climax. The climax revealed verse 26 to 37. Verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Paul now zooms into those two great events that bring salvation. Firstly, Paul focuses on the death of Jesus in verse 27 to 29. And from these words, Paul reveals that the people of Jerusalem did not recognise Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they were actually fulfilling the very scriptures they read every Sabbath. What sort of scriptures may Paul have in mind? Perhaps something like Genesis 3.15, where they would have read all about the seed of the woman who would become the serpent crusher. Or perhaps Isaiah 53, uh, verse 3, they would have studied all about the man of sorrows who would be pierced for their transgressions. Or in Psalm 22, verse 12, many times they would have heard the king's cry, they pierced my hand and feet, they divided my garments with lots. Or Psalm 118, verse 22, would be familiar to their, their lips, where it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And also they would have read prophets, prophets like uh, Daniel, Daniel 9.24, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Jesus was crucified and laid in the tomb, but, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem they are now his witnesses to our people one of the fantastic things about God's story and its climax in Jesus is its real verified history it's verified by many witnesses God's story is fact the gospel is fact Jesus was crucified, but verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. 
You know, this is the, the backbone of the sermon. This is the, at the very heart of Paul's message. The climax is seen in the resurrection of Jesus. This is the ultimate fulfilment of all those uh, promises. You know, the resurrection proved Jesus as the Saviour. The resurrection showed that Jesus is the universal king and the one who would sit at the right hand of the Father. The resurrection affirmed Jesus' judge of the whole world. The resurrection is a stamp of God's approval, you know, his verification that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay the price for man's sin. Death has been defeated, sin has been paid for and Satan's doom is assured. What God promised our fathers, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And then Paul again grounds this truth in Scripture by going to a string of Old Testament passages from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 55 and, and Psalm 16. While Paul uses flexibility in getting to the gospel, when it comes to the immovable climax, it's all about doctrinal truth it's not about what jesus has done for me even though jesus does a lot for us it's not about jesus changed my life even though jesus does transform lives the gospel is not how jesus changed my life because lots of things change people's lives getting married changes people's lives you know going through a cancer experiences changes people's lives giving up drugs. People in cults and false religions say this or that changed their life. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done on the cross and affirmed through the resurrection. This is the immovable truth. There is no flexibility in the gospel. And remember back in verse 15 where the rulers of the synagogue said, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Paul has a word of encouragement and it is the good news and we need to keep proclaiming it. But Paul does not stop there. The gospel needs to be applied. Now the climax applied is verse 38 through to 41. Verse 38 says, Therefore, my brothers... Therefore is an important word as it is a marker. Therefore, my brothers, marks a change in the sermon as Paul moves from the indicative what Christ has done to the imperative, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to the gospel? Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. The promise, this blessing is being proclaimed to you. The source of the blessing is in verse 38, through Jesus. Through him, verse 39. Jesus' death on the cross is a source of blessing. The law of Moses cannot save the law is good yes at revealing how we fall short of god's holy standard but it cannot save however the blessing comes through who the law and the prophets pointed to what the law and the prophets point to jesus christ the source of the blessing jesus now the blessing substance 
is the forgiveness of sins, verse 38, spoken of as being justified in verse 39. Forgiveness of sin is a message repeatedly proclaimed in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 10, forgiveness of sin is what mankind needs. We need to be set free from that guilt. We need to be cleansed on our conscience of all that shame. We need to be rid of the condemnation. And through Jesus, this can happen. Jesus can save us from the penalty of sin, past, the power of sin, present, and the future of, of uh, the presence in the future from the presence of sin. The blessing substance is a forgiveness through Jesus, also talked about as being justified. Now, the Greek word there for justified in verse 39 means to be declared innocent. To be justified is a legal act whereby God, the judge of the whole earth, declares a filthy sinner not guilty. And this can only occur because Jesus took the punishment for us. Jesus absorbed the righteous wrath of God for our sin. The blessing source, Jesus Christ's death on the cross, the blessing substance, forgiveness and justification, and the blessing scope is there in verse 39. Everyone who believes is justified. Everyone who believes is justified. The gospel call goes out. And the Bible says everyone who believes is justified. Everyone who believes has forgiveness of sin. Now it would be easy for some downcast soul to think, surely not I. Surely not I. Do you know the darkness of my soul? It comes out of a craving of my eyes for sexual stimulation. I seek it everywhere, even online in ways I don't want to discuss. Another might say, well, if you only knew the thoughts that went through my head. Another might say, you don't know how bad I've been. I covet, I get jealous, I have such pride, I gossip, I crave material satisfaction and I'm so selfish. You don't know the apathy I have for the kingdom of God. I'm more of the world than for the kingdom. Paul says, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified. Believe upon Jesus and you will be forgiven. You are declared by the judge of the whole earth as being not guilty because of Christ's sacrifice for you. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Now I'd love to leave it there, but Paul's message now turns to those who reject the gospel in verse 40. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, and wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Paul uses a past judgment 
of God, the exile, to warn of the future judgment of God. This warning may well have been partially fulfilled in the destruction of the temple, but it points beyond that. Paul's point, believe and be forgiven or face the wrath of God at his judgment seat. Paul's warning, believe or be eternally condemned under the judgment of God. And Paul ends his sermon with that challenge and uh, I believe that's a good place for us to stop and finish as Paul finished with that challenge. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you, Lord, and know that your word is often uh, very confronting, very challenging. But Father, it's always full of such grace and mercy. It is good news, Lord, and we just want to thank you and praise you for the justification that we can have in your name. That, Father, where the judge of the whole earth can declare us not guilty, but not only removes our sins, but clothes us with Jesus' righteousness so that we are purified and righteous in your sight. Father, may we all here once again be appreciative of what you've done for us. And Father, as we present that message to to others in our community, may we be wise and flexible in the way that we uh, deal with those, our friends and family members. May we seek your wisdom in, in how to to bring the gospel to light in their lives. Father, we pray that we as people will be flexible in the areas that scripture allows us to be flexible. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be strong and and hold to the firm truth where scripture is clear. Father, I pray for our riverbank, Lord. We pray, Father, that this will be a, a church and a congregation Uh, led by pastors that rightly divide your word, that don't move to the right or to the left, but hold to to the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that this church will be a light uh, in this community, a pillar of truth, a place where people hear your word expounded, where it's uh, preached faithfully, where it's not swayed by the uh, the society around it and the worldviews that continually uh, press upon us. Father, we pray that you'll bless this church, continue to grow it, Lord, not just numerically, but we pray, Father, that you'll grow it in maturity as a Bible teaching church. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.